Storie libere presents The master needs the disciple in the same way as the rain cloud needs somewhere to pour its water. It is heavy. The master is heavy with his experience. It is a beautiful, ecstatic experience. But still, it is too much. He wants somebody to share it. So it is not only a question of needing one disciple, he can have millions of disciples, and still he is in need of disciples. There is no limit to it. The disciple needs only one master. The master needs millions of disciples for the simple reason that something is continuously growing in him. The master needs disciples, otherwise he cannot even live. The disciple can live without the master, although he will be asleep, which is not much of a life. The master does not lead you to the truth because he has already traveled the path. He has already found the right door, the right method. He can help you to eliminate the wrong doors. In other words, the function of the master is not to give you the truth, but to make you aware what is false, to make you aware what is not truth. He cuts your journey down to the shortest possible way. We left Diksha totally immersed in the reality of Pune, an ashram that becomes bigger and more talked about every day because of the therapies that take place within it, which, giving free rein to repressed urges, also result in violence and uninhibited sexual acts. Bhagwan thus becomes famous in the West as the sex guru. The community struggles to counter this characterization which on the other hand makes it decidedly attractive for those who want to escape the world in search of a master who can show them a completely different path. I'm Roberta Lippi and I write for a living. I've written for print media, TV, radio, online, and finally with voice, two podcasts for Storie Libere, Soli and Love Bombing. In the past years, I've had an epiphany that led me to telling those stories, which today led into the one I'm about to share with you, a long confession, or perhaps what we should more simply call a report of events, events that only a few people know about, and which from today you will know about too. This is Dragon Lady, The Last Witness. Initiations, dynamic meditations, freedom of the body and of one instincts, the teachings of the Master so full of inspiration give the disciples sudden insight. Conquered by the atmosphere the Guru creates around him, each has a goal, to achieve what he has achieved, an awakening that brings with it awareness and knowledge. In short, a sudden insight into the meaning of it all, that is, enlightenment. He was human. He had uh, great characteristic, capacity, richness even, intellectual richness. At the beginning, in Bombay, when you talk about something, he will talk and elaborate uh, in an intense uh, but uh, interesting way. 
So Osho was uh, a gifted man, but clearly he was a narcissist. He lacked a certain empathy, even though sometimes he will appear very benevolent, but you could see that he was kind of detached, and we projected that this meant to be enlightenment. What is enlightenment? I really don't know what is enlightenment, but I can say that I saw how it was used to manipulate people. And many people in India I've met that are, in my perception, more common than real sage and than a true teacher. So I see that, unfortunately, because we don't know really what enlightenment means, this concept, this idea is dangerous. And I honestly must say that we have seen the consequence of all these people that declare themselves so-called enlightenment or semi-enlightenment, whatever they are, they came from Rajneesh or for people that were with other guru. And you can see that they are fake that they have learned the rope, they have learned how to behave, how to act, how to present himself, uh, but it is more fluff. It's not really, they are not really teacher. I have revisited often this concept uh, inside me, and clearly for me, enlightenment doesn't mean to hurt people. Enlightenment is not manipulating people, it's not exploiting people, neither sexually, financially, psychologically, emotionally. This is not enlightenment. If there exists a state where a person has reached a state of equanimity, of inner peace, it cannot manifest. It doesn't absolutely include taking advantage of other people. My experience with Osho Rajneesh has shown me clearly that he has taken advantage of other people. So even though he was a gifted man, even though he had, let's say, the capacity, and I will use the Indian name of Shaktipat, of transmitting, because it's true that he was able, that in his presence he was able to transmit something. Because sometimes what people say that they felt elated in his presence, or shower with love. It's true that he was, on a certain level, able to do that. It was almost like a thing apart. It was something that stood on his own. And the same man who could transmit Shaktipat, who in India means transmit like an energetic shower you with a benevolent energy, was the same person that would uh, ask uh, and exploit and manipulate his follower. So clearly, he had not, and I can understand even in Indian tradition, he had had some realization, but he had not addressed some of his own character flow, personality limitation, psychological issue. So for my question is more, what is enlightenment? Clearly, it's not hurting other people. Even if often 
his behavior was justified, was explained by his disciple, by his follower, as a device, as a joke, or as a, a teaching. But it was not, you know. It was simply a man from a middle-lower class who wanted to, you know, he was a victim in a way of his lust for material goods. So for me, more is what is... <laughs> what enlightenment is not. And then that's whatever that state exists or doesn't exist. And this is really, the jury, let's say, is still out. For me, the proof is in the pudding, meaning our person behave. I don't mean that a person has to be a saint. No, of course, I, I understand that people in a human body, you have your own needs, including sexual need, or you are human, but how do you treat people? Enlightened or not, Bhagwan has an irresistible charisma. Followers would do anything to be in his presence for as long as possible. But only those who are Indian or have British passports can stay in India permanently. Everyone else has to go back and forth from another country. Many of them, though, have left their jobs, so to make money, they start small questionable businesses abroad, thanks to their purchases in India at bargain prices. Some sell t-shirts or fabrics to Western shops. Some sell carpets. Some fall back on more dangerous trafficking. Some did drug deal, you know, drugs, even before. It's nothing to do only with Rajneesh. Even by the late 60s, after following the Beatles to India, many Western people start dealing in drug or in T-shirt or they bought knick-knack. This was before sannyasi women prostituted themselves to remain in India. At the time in Bombay, I didn't know anybody that did that. I must say, just for the sake of truth, historical truth, that even toward the end of Bombay, there were some of the Western disciple woman who came that uh, through an Indian man who was actually uh, hanging around uh, Bhagwan, who he was organizing party in Indian houses where the woman will come and dance. Not naked, but kind of uh, uh, sexual dances, and uh, something happened in a way in that context. This I knew never happened to me. I was never in that circle, so I, I, I only know because I knew that somebody personally that I knew. She gone, and she said that that the man then came and touched her. They wanted to touch her. In order to be close to the master. Foreign men and women were ready to do anything. But the more the community grew, the more it moved away from the possibility of any direct contact with him. Even those who were particularly close, like the ones who took care of his house, didn't have access to him. It wasn't the case for others, like Diksha, who not only had that privilege, but also had the power that somehow came with it. I think they were different in a circle. Everybody who was in one of the inner circle thought that there was 
there was the only inner circle, but in reality there were few. In Bombay, a war is uh, early follower, who are mostly Jain, who were the one that sponsored him, including Lakshmi or Azovoza Jain, who wore his inner circle. When we arrived in Pune, after a while, Lakshmi started to, I would say, farm out different uh, roles. She could not answer the letter. At the beginning, Lakshmi literally at night on her desk will handwriting letter. There was a woman, a Dutch woman, her name was Arup, and she became Lakshmi assistant. And she started uh, writing letter for Lakshmi. And then later on, she also had her own assistant. And then the letter were not wrote, of course, by hand, but they were typed. And then uh, Sheila became the other assistant of Lakshmi, who were like two two branches, in a way, of Lakshmi role. One was a group dealing more for people coming, doing groups, uh, English-speaking people. And, and Sheila, who was more, since she was Indian, you know, she spoke the language, she was uh, taking care of certain aspects of Lakshmi's job. And then Sheila herself had her own assistant. So it became like a pyramid, like in all organizations. And I was, I would say, you know, one of the person that I had personal contact with him. Was Bhagwan aware of these divisions of responsibilities? From my experience, he had the people that he liked, I would say his favorite, that he had some personal contact, whatever. They worked for him or they worked around the house or they worked with Lakshmi. Lakshmi had mentioned them. Then the people that he was quite indifferent. You know, really indifferent. I saw him even in Pune when I mentioned certain issue with the kitchen or people that he didn't know, he, he brushed them. He was indifferent. And then the word, the one that for one reason or another that he, I would not say disliked them, but they were not so keen. In my perception, I saw it like he was human. He had like everybody else, people thought that he was um, shining the same amount of love or kindness uh, in a way that a guru is really unconditional love. And even if he gives you so-called a stick, it's because he loves you. But uh, particularly Sheila and even myself, I must say that... Uh, this is not uh, what it was when he was uh, in his private, alone in his room. He clearly was human. He had his light, his dislike, and got annoyed, got angry, and got bored. Sometimes it looked like he was bored or that he was not happy, in a way. But the followers are not aware of this. They see the guru almost as a sort of god by now. The fact that he's not accessible is essentially a given. If anything, it increases his credibility and value. The relationship between a guru and a disciple is a very complex phenomenon. In a way, very simple, otherwise very complex. 
It is simple because the relationship exists only on the part of the disciple. On the part of the master, there is no relationship because the master doesn't exist. He is there no more. He is a nobody. It appears to you that he is. This appearance will persist unless you surrender. Once you surrender, once you become a non-being, suddenly you will see that the master has never been there. The master is an absence, but the absence can be seen only when you have also become an absence. Only two absences meet. If you are present, you go on projecting on the master also that he is. It is your projection because your ego cannot see non-ego. Only the similar can respond to the similar. Your ego can only see egos everywhere. That is a way to protect your own self. Wherever you look, immediately you project an ego. So even the master will look like somebody, some ego. And you will find ways and means to prove to yourself that he is also an ego. If the master has an ego, that means he is not really a master, just pretending. Then his compassion will be only in the name compassion. He will be cruel, he will torture you, of course, in such a way that you will feel this torturing is a discipline. He will force you to do things which are painful and unnecessary, but he will enjoy that pain. He will rationalize it. This is the phenomenon. With a wrong master, with an egotistic master, whatsoever happens goes wrong. His discipline becomes a sadism. His own life becomes masochistic. His whole being becomes destructive. Ego is destructive. But if there is a real master, relationship exists only on the part of the disciple. You love him, you obey him, he is not concerned with your obedience. He is not concerned with your love. That doesn't mean that he doesn't care. He cares infinitely, but there is no one who can be related. Relationship exists on your part, and it will continue to exist until you surrender. So surrender is the greatest and deepest relationship, and the end of relationship also. When sannyasins are asked whether or not Osho was a master, whether or not he had higher powers, they all cite their experience during darshan. Darshan literally means union, and the so-called energy darshan, given by the master to many, was a powerful personal experiencing of a vision, and is still remembered today as an almost mystical, for some even orgasmic event. I ask Diksha, to tell me about her experience with Osho's darshan. The average sannyasi used the word mystical maybe a time inappropriately because uh, mystical is usually a 
It's like an inner experience. Uh, Darshan was more a communal experience. It was a very well choreographed experience. The fact that you were told uh, that, of course, you had to have a shower, uh, you have to make sure that you don't smell, you have to wait in line before you're accepting into a darshan, people smell you, and then you get to get in. The people who are um, the ashramite uh, get to sit in the first row, and then the people that have to take sannyasi, and then the people that have darshan. So all this even hierarchical setup was inducing a certain amount of awe in first-time visitor, in a way. Then everybody had to be silent while they go in, everybody going to a line one after another. There will be guard telling where to sit, nobody say a word. Then, then we will wait for Rajneesh to come out. He will come with Lakshmi and Vivek is to, let's, let's say, assistant, sat down. People start calling name, people will, will be initiated and then later on he will do the darshan. But just to give you the feeling, it was choreographed. You know, like the light was only on him, the crowd, who could be 40, 60, 80 people sitting, 100, and, you know, at the end there were a lot of people. They will be in silence and in darkness, and the only light will be shining on him. He will be surrounded by his assistant on one side, his assistant on the other. And then in the background, there was uh, the people that would play music. So when he will call somebody to energy darshan, the, he will call some woman that he called medium, that they will supposedly channel his own energy. So for instance, somebody will call a man, he will ask a medium to hold his feet or put the, their hand on his shoulder, on the head, and he will touch the person. Third eye, uh, the music will start, the music could be fast, could be slow, the light sometimes will be off, when, and the, the medium will dance, uh, sway. So all this um, would bring a certain climatic uh, peak, and people interpret that as a mystic experience. But from what I know, personally, many people later on admitted that there was more a show than something that really they felt. Some people went, uh, some Indian woman, I remember once, even in Bombay, during a, one of this so-called session, went into a kind of hysterical trance, you know, where she had to be carried away. And, and sometimes that happened. But there was part, this was, of course, um, I think, created in a way. So I, I think, yes, it's true. It was a, a powerful psychic. Yeah, it's true, but I would not in any way call it mystical. I think it's more suggestion in a way, because uh, if one wants to analyze the word charisma, is a, then it's another question. You know, Of course, there are men or women who are charismatic and they enter a room and they manage to focus the energy of other people to themselves. Actors do that, singer, even politicians. So of course, this is, you know, people have charisma. 
And obviously, Rajneesh had charisma, but this doesn't mean that they can, I'm talking about the Rajneesh, give you a mystical experience. Because a mystical experience is never something that somebody gives you. But Bhagwan loves to choreograph, as Diksha says, the world around him. Between Bombay and Pune, Diksha begins to notice in the master a certain attachment to material things. And, you know, I talked to this about with Lakshmi, and Lakshmi explained to me in her understanding that uh, enlightened teachers, when, you, when people awaken, they awaken to the absolute, and so the reality of the world is uh, relative. And so, in a way, they, they are like children. And I saw it, I saw it in Bombay sometime, in a couple of occasions when he was looking at catalog to look at watches, uh, or uh, uh, when he asked me to bring a bottle of Armagnac because he had read that Gurdjieff was drinking Armagnac, so he wanted to try Armagnac, and I bought him. I could see that there was a, a certain amount of uh, infantilism, and even kind of, I will say, I interpret this as innocence at the time. Yeah, or even with pen. The first time somebody bought him a pen because he liked pen, and I brought him a pen. And the way he was looking at the pen, it was almost like a child looking at a toy. And then, of course, you know, with him, it was always a pen. Then he wanted a second pen and a third and a fourth. And by the end, I don't know, many had 80 pen. Or, you know, with Kathleen, there was a time that he was using Kathleen. So it, there was a certain amount of, I would say, narcissism that we, in a, in a so-called inner circle, knew that about him. For instance, that he loved to have little tower at the beginning, you know, tower that he will, you get your hand maybe in India, little sweaty, so he would like a little kind of napkin tower. And then uh, he wanted the towel. There should be the best the cotton come from age. There was, uh, there was, I would say, not discordant note, uh, but enough sample of a form of, of some form of infantilism and also maybe indulgence. Clearly, it was, you know. Of course, we beautifies infantilism. We say, oh, because he's like a, it's like an innocent child. Uh, he's innocent, you know, as you transcend everything. But even though we told ourselves that story, there was enough, if you knew in person, you saw him in certain situation, where you realize well, there may be something more than just innocent. But in that way, I will not say that this is for me enough for me at the time even to not respect him or love him because I have my own, I know myself, my own human nature, how we are all on some level infantile. Nobody is fully grown. Diksha mentioned a watch catalogue. She herself had brought it to Bhagwan when she came back from Geneva when on the Guru's commission she had bought a golden Rolex for Vivek. Also in that catalogue was a very limited edition Piaget watch with a diamond-studded bracelet. If I remember, it was uh, correct, $56,000, $56,000 or 
6,000 francs. It was a very out of the ordinary at the time. The most expensive watch from Rolex were 8,000, 10,000. So it cost much more. And he said, oh, this is a beautiful watch. Uh, uh, so when I show him the, the catalog, he loved that watch and he asked me, oh, watch? He almost implied, can you buy me this watch? I look at the price and I said, oh, well, this is very expensive. And he was surprised. I said, oh, you know, really that much? Oh, okay, okay. Despite the price being out of reach, Bhagwan nevertheless asks Diksha to inquire about the cost and availability. When she returns with confirmation of the price, he has already thought of a way to get it. And this is the time that he said, oh, okay, okay. I will ask so-and-so to buy it for me. He made a joke. He, he is very good. He makes money selling drug. And uh, he's a, a big timer. That he had made the, once a shipment that he imported some kind of drug to the United States as big as a car. He said, I will ask him. He said, uh, he will get the money to buy the watch. And that's exactly what happened. A few months later, I remember once, uh, everybody was saying, oh, do you see the new watch of Bagman? I arrived back and that's where he was. He had the famous Piaget watch. And so I remember that I talked with the guy. I said, oh, you, you bought it for Bagman. The guy who I knew had done, was involved in this kind of dealing. And the guy said, yes, I bought it for him. So he knew exactly that uh, how the money would come to buy this watch. Bagwan is certainly not a master who takes no for an answer. He's used to being revered and cared for. And so, despite Vivek's presence, he decides that the time has come again to meet disciples alone in his private sessions. By the time he started inviting medium, who were the woman that during darshan will dance, uh, and when he closed the light, he will touch them under their clothes. You know, he would touch the breast. Uh, he would touch them during darshan when the lights were off. At the same time, some of these women were invited personally to his room. And uh, sometime they were asked, to make love between themselves, or um, to be naked. I was not involved in that. I was not asked. So my story with him sexually finished in Bombay. But a couple of times that I was invited as a medium, I, not as a medium, I was in the in the audience. He said, "Come, Dikshani, he touch when the life was off," and I was very surprised when the first time he touched my breast. He went under my robe and I was, I was surprised. And I thought, oh, because I'm an old time, I, I, I was, but I was shocked because I thought that this was something that had finished years ago. But I know that he had invited other people from which he would uh, demand to receive a blowjob. Or sometime, like I said, that they, he will have Vivek, he will ask, the person to make love to Vivek and he will watch or other women to touch themselves or to masturbate in front of him. I know that some of the women, even some that I know personally, 
when it happened, acquiesced to his demand, but this was very traumatizing for them. It's not that they liked it. It was something that when you think somebody's enlightened and somebody asks you the most outrageous thing, you assume that in your idiocy, that this is not just a man lasting to have his dick being sucked. You interpret it maybe wrongly. You assume that maybe this is a test for you to break uh, some of your inhibition. But of course, uh, some of the women to whom that happened, after, of course, with time, understood and felt abuse, uh, terribly abused by him. Because sometimes he will just, they will come him, he will go and lift his robe and he will discharge himself in their mouth. And then that's it. And then he will say, good, good. And so in retrospect, after the whole thing, of course, the passing of time, they understood how they were used and abused. Diksha tells me about other confidences shared with her by some other sannyasins over the years, one in particular. What happened with this uh, particular woman was that it was clear that he wanted her to swallow his pearl. It was an imposition. And in, in that way, he even wanted to, for her to train. He wanted her to relax her throat so that he could uh, eject it in her mouth. And I know this was extremely traumatizing for her. So it was uh, not only a sexual act, uh, but a, uh, an act of dominance and violence. And it was an abuse of power, obviously. It was a man using woman for his own pathetic itch. In these accounts, some of these women knelt to serve the guru sexually and then would remain motionless on their knees as the guru left, or were told to stay silent. Nobody could know what happened in the room. Even if Diksha doesn't remember the exact number, in Pune the permanent mediums were about a dozen. Even Diksha at that time isn't aware of those encounters, nor does she want to investigate further. She can't stop. She has to carry on with her hyperactive life, serving the community and the guru, because the number of people now living in Pune and those visiting keeps increasing. Bhagwan speaks in public every day. He's modern, contradictory, challenging, and doesn't mind making jokes at the expense of Indian politicians. This is also why, to protect his person and the ashram, men are being trained in Pune who will be called the samurai. They are actual bodyguards who wear Japanese karate uniforms. In 1980, there are 50 samurai in Pune. During a morning practice, one of them suffers an aneurysm. What is known to date is that the man, who came from a noble family and was in Pune with his wife and daughter, died. And that Bhagwan gave the news of his death during a lecture declaring him enlightened, announcing to everyone 
family members who had rushed to be at his side included, that he had been in contact with the soul of the man and given him permission to leave, which the disciple had done of his own volition. But Diksha was there and knows what really happened. He was uh, brought to the hospital in Pune, where they tried to release the pressure from his brain, but they were not successful. And so his mother and his brother came from Europe, and then uh, he was in a coma. And it looked like maybe, from what I understood, that he would not awaken from the coma. And Rechnish even went to see him at the hospital. Uh, so called to give him his blessing or give him energy. And I was there when he, was, he went to touch his head as he was in a coma. At the same time, because of his um, medical condition, the mother decided to call the father, her husband. And the father was supposed to come a couple of days. And the same day, I was called by him. And the First, the message came from Vivek first, and then he confirmed it, but it was much shorter. Vivek talked more about the tale, that uh, this man had uh, reached a point that uh, he was, he implied that he was ready to die, that uh, his body would not be able to recover, and that he will die, and that he said that he, Bhagwan, had arranged for him to be helped to pass over and that we should not say anything to the mother and to the brother. What he had uh, told me is that uh, he had already uh, sent a message for the doctor and a nurse to go to the hospital the next day during lecture and that they will arrange for him to go, that there was time for him, uh, that his body was ready to go. He was on a respirator, but they will arrange it for to euthanize him. During lecture, the next day, the mother and the brother would be invited with the promise that Bhagwan will talk about this man. And that's what happened. I was supposed to go to the lecture, and as usually I was sitting beside or behind Vivek because I was supposed to pass Vivek the message if he had died while he was speaking to the lecture. And that's what happened. During the morning, we had breakfast, we had the mother with the brother went with the other family member who were in Pune. I went, sat behind Vivek, and I was waiting, we were waiting. I'd been told to prepare for his death, to prepare for the burning, and to also uh, prepare to build a samadhi for him, because he will die, and by dying, he will become enlightened. I was waiting, and the time was passing, and then uh, suddenly uh, the nurse, came back and passed me a note who said that he had died so that I could pass it to Vivek and she should signal to him so that he could start 
saying that now I know that he has gone and he passed over and he died beautiful and he died enlightened. It is 9.05 and I agreed with him that at 8.30 he could leave the body. So he must have left the body. At 9.30 he will be here and I will be coming back to give him a send-off. Get ready, rejoice, dance. Dance to abandon. Let him go like a prince. He was a prince. Every one of my sannyasins is a prince. I don't believe in beggars. I believe only in emperors. And this was all orchestrated, absolutely orchestrated. And so naturally the, the mother who was in the audience was very distraught. You can see that she started to cry and he said, no, you, all of you have to rejoice because his passing was beautiful, etc. And um, we will bring the body of this man to Buddha Hall in half an hour, so get ready, you know, to celebrate. And that's what happened. So Rajneesh went back to his room, and by then we were already bringing the flower. We went to pick up his body on a stretch of, from the hospital, brought him back. Rajneesh came out, blessed his body, and right away we, we burned it. So everything was arranged the day before. And after we came back from the burning, I was called by him, say how he wanted the samadhi. He wanted right away to build. And we work like day and night to build this kind of marble coffin where we put the ashes. From what I heard from him, that he wanted to happen before the father arrived because he felt that the father could interfere. And he didn't want that to happen. And this was for me, very disturbing, because I, uh, I was involved. And so how when he talked during, you know, lecture, how the people were, some people were crying, celebrating, and it was all orchestrated, everything. I didn't understand why he needed to do that. I understand it was, he did it because this man was from an important family, and he wanted the publicity. He could say, oh, the son of a so-and-so is so in Europe, he died and he was enlightened. Of course, if he had been the son of a doorman, he would not have done that. To gain visibility, Bhagwan has done something terrible. Almost without realizing, by speaking about what he has done, he has started a chain reaction that has involved innocent people in a decision that was his alone, passing it off as a necessary act. We don't know if he discussed his decision with a man's wife. Certainly, the visiting family members were unaware. It's unclear if he wished others to share in the responsibility for his directive, but he certainly once again wanted to see how far people had by now surrendered to the bending of their morals. But this was very disappointed. Even the, when I, the day after, when the father was arriving, and I said goodbye to the mother, and I know that the father didn't want to meet uh, Bhagwan, that they left shortly afterward. I really felt uh, very, in a sense, uh, almost dirtied. 
I felt that I had participated in this farce that the night before when people were still asking, so how is he doing? You think he will be recovered? We heard that he's in a coma and we were already putting together the wood uh, for the next day. We were already had gone to inquire about the marble and the guy was still breathing. Uh, Rajesh told me that, uh, he, that he will arrange uh, for a doctor, uh, uh, one of the ashram doctor and a nurse to go and uh, let him go. This news actually does not turn out to be good publicity for the ashram because no one really knows what caused the man's initial illness. What's more, word is spreading outside that group therapies within the commune often torn into orgies. So the Indian government is starting to set its sights on the commune. Especially since Bhagwan's is not a religion, the state is demanding that the group start paying taxes. And since space in Pune is becoming way too tight for the disciples, the master asks Lakshmi to quickly find new land. But for Lakshmi, the undertaking is extremely difficult. And the fact that we were tight and the government didn't allow any land that Lakshmi had been found in the last year, the government had not given permission, you know, because you have to get approval, you know, to buy a big piece of land, you know. Each um, state in India had different law. And Lakshmi told me that she had found a piece of land in eastern north of India that they had said no, and the police, the guy of the thing, said no, because uh, she told me, she, she was shocked. She said, Our reputation was that we were drug smugglers. Not only that they were, of course, individual, but that the ashram itself was a most organization that was always partly true because a lot of people were drug smuggling, giving the money to, to Rajneesh, to Bhagwan, not him directly, but to the organization. While Lakshmi went back and forth in search of a suitable piece of land for relocation, the ashram still needed direction for its day-to-day practical aspects. Until now, it's been said that the role was given to Sheila, but thanks to Diksha, we find out that that was not exactly the case. Instead, Lakshmi decided to give that task to Arup, one of her assistants, who was to be her deputy while she was away. For some reason, some of us, including myself, we felt that Arup was not the right person. Lakshmi asked me, and I said, yeah, Lakshmi, sometime... If I have to, Arup, I, I didn't feel that she could convey in a way. And so she said, okay, so Lakshmi will ask Bhagman what about Sheila? And that's what happened. Sheila went in. She replaced Arup for the few days that she was out. And uh, slowly she became more important in a way. You know, she was very good and and she was very helpful to Lakshmi, very devoted, so-called to Lakshmi, uh, Sheila. And after a while, she managed in a way to, she started talking. Oh, it's hard. I don't think that Lakshmi will ever find the land. I don't know if we can do it. It's terrible. Bhagwan needs more space, you know, because in a way, he too, he had a room, he had a little garden, but it was tight, you know, we were tight. 
she's the one who starts saying, I remember over a dinner once with me, said, oh, yeah. and to think that in America one can buy enormous pieces of land. Oh, if we ever would convince him to go to America, she started putting the seed of that. And so in a way she organized a kind of coup. She convinced the people in the inner circle of which I was one. And I would say that is, I always carry that guilt in a way, the sense of sorrow that I, I did uh, support the Chile against uh, Lakshmi. And when Lakshmi was coming back from a trip, she also was tired. She could not get the land, you know, she'd been refused already three, four times. So there was a certain amount of discouragement by Lakshmi's side. I could see that she herself was a little worn out, you know, after so many years, never having a free day. So during this time where Lakshmi was coming back from the trip, not finding the land, Sheila talking about, you know, how easy it is to find the land in America. So we supported her in a way. And this was me, Arup, Vidya and Savita. And we had dinner together, the five of us that night. And when Sheila asks the others what they think of her idea of finding a place in America, Diksha, who has lived in the United States, can only confirm that there is plenty of land and ample space. And so, the next day she receives a message from Vivek telling her that Bhagwan wants to talk to her privately. And when I went to his room, he said, Sheila told me, she had been saying that, you know, that Lakshmi is not able to find the land. And, and Sheila said that is, is you have been living in America. What do you think, Diksha? And we had a conversation and I thought I was American and I told him about my experience who had been quite uh, positive. A few days later, Bhagwan inquires again with Diksha about how she got her visa to enter the United States. So she explains to him that she entered on a tourist visa and then was able to stay because of her work as a translator at the United Nations. And he said, but Sheila said that it's very easy if uh, in America, if you marry, if you make a false marriage, very easy. I didn't know that, honestly, at the time. I mean, I didn't know, it never had occurred to me. The only thing I knew, I said, you know, that they, they are very strict that if they find out that they deport you, that. And I even said it to him, said, no, Sheila said it's very easy that the people get married, you know, and they can marry before to go to the state. So he downplayed that. And even my, my idiocy said, okay. So what happened is Lakshmi didn't know. So this happened. So Lakshmi was away. And when she come back, she was almost presented with the fair complete that this is, she was shocked because she didn't understood. She arrived back and Bhagwan called to her room. Sheila said that she has connection. You know, he also told her thing that was not true, that she knew that to find a big land and this thing and, you know, and, and so. No, I, I, it was a betrayal. I betray. I, it, it was a betrayal. Bhagwan asks Diksha to prepare a list of a few people she would take with her to the U.S., to start the American adventure. It's 1980, and a $5 million back tax demand looms over the commune. Bhagwan falls victim to two attacks, one on his life and another that burns down the warehouse where his books are stored. Or at least, 
This is what has been said so far. It was false. I mean, that's what Lakshmi said. It was done to create uh, the feeling that he was persecuted. And that's why he was, uh, you know, that he was forced to leave India because India was not appreciating him. And so with, uh, with the attempt of his life, who was not, because the guy threw a, a knife that they would not have uh, even cut, I don't know, a piece of soft cheese, literally. So... The burning of the book happened after we decided to go to America. It happened because he wanted to appear that he was persecuted, the same way that the throw of the knife, there was a false event, in a way, created so that he could say, you know, I'm persecuted, you know, I become a refugee. And so the book happened for money. The book that we, I mean, we ourselves burned, some people built a bomb to burn the book, was so that we could ask the insurance. It was for insurance. So combined, so by leaving, we were, I think he was hoping, or the people in charge, that the taxes would be cancelled. But from what I heard, and I don't know from sure, but Lakshmi said that when they came back to India in 85, the government said, by the way, you do owe us still the back um, unpaid tax. And they settle for something lower. And the insurance never pay for the book burning because we did it. And any idiot would see that it was done. And the books burning was uh, a shill idea, he told me, personally, face to face. But uh, when I went to tell him about it, that I thought it was not a good idea, he told me to stay out. Sheila is Enderly, you know, don't worry, because uh, Sheila come to me trying to figure out who of the people working in the Asha knew how to make a, a firebomb. And I said, nobody. And then I went to him. So he told me face to face. For a moment, I even doubted that he knew. I thought maybe Sheila got, you know, the idea, she's trying to figure out for money. She will tell him, but he doesn't know. So I went the same evening. I went to Rebecca and she said, yeah. And I went in and I told him, I'm going, Sheila is thinking to her. He said, yeah, yeah, I know, Sheila. As, uh, was, uh, yeah, yeah, it's okay. You know, don't worry. Don't interfere. You, you know, so we were thinking of moving. So I was already uh, getting ready with the preparation for us to move. But he knew. Sheila carries out a proper coup against Lakshmi, the woman who years earlier had even defended her to Bhagwan, who wanted to kick her out of the commune because of a quarrel she had with other sannyasins. But now, with Lakshmi out of the picture and with the support of the other people who have access to Osho, Sheila is able to convince Bhagwan that she's the perfect person to handle the relocation to America. But what did the other people of the commune think of that change at the top, and especially this relocation? It was kept very secretly that we were leaving to America. We organized it, uh, I don't think that maybe the two dozen people knew that he was leaving for America. It was you know, kept between us. The people that were going, I mean, my group that went ahead to prepare the house, to wear the place with him. But there are people in his house, in his own house. 
that one day when the day that he left, that they saw him leaving with the car like he was going for a drive, a thing that he never did, so they were shocked. And then a few hours later, there was announced uh, that he had left, but not that he had left for America, that he had left and that, uh, and then it was suggested that the people in Pune, that there was time for people to go back to the West, uh, collect money, that then when the new community will be established or found or put together, they will be invited. I heard, I mean, I already left, that there was kind of, uh, some people were upset, uh, some people cry, uh, there was a lot of turmoil. Uh, and then, of course, the people that were left after Bhagwan had left uh, in charge of the ashram uh, were explaining. I heard that many people went to the office explaining, no, you know, we are, this is just... Uh, a phase, uh, you know, you will be invited, so don't worry. Were, but I heard that there was a lot of, you know, heartache at the time. So it was kept very secret. This is significant for everybody present here and everybody who is going to be in any way related to me. Whatsoever happens in this commune happens according to me. This you have to understand absolutely, that whatsoever happens here, I may not come out of my room, I never come except in the morning and the evening, and I never go around the ashram, but whatsoever happens here is perfectly known to me, is happening according to me. Please don't interfere. This is not going to be a democracy. You are not to be asked what should be done and what should not be done. This should be remembered from the very beginning that this is not going to be a democracy. Your votes will never be taken. You become part of it with that knowledge that whatsoever I decide is absolute. If you don't choose that way, you are perfectly happy to leave. With the community not knowing what is going on and a trip to the other side of the world to arrange, Diksha faces, almost 10 years after joining the movement, another major challenge, bringing the master to the other side of the world. Indeed, to precede him, because she and the people she has chosen have already left to prepare for his arrival. You've been listening to Dragon Lady, a podcast written and curated by Roberta Lippi, with Valeria Ardito's sound design. The international voice of Roberta Lippi is Cecilia Gragnani. Dragon Lady is available on storielibere.fm and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be waiting for you on the next episode. Storie Libere Production by Gianandrea Cerone and Rossana De Michele. Post and sound design era zero.